This is the Poetry Foundation's Essential American Poets podcast. Essential American Poets is an online audio poetry collection. The poets in the collection were selected in 2006 by Donald Hall when he was Poet Laureate. Recordings of the poets he selected are available online at poetryfoundation.org and poetryarchive.org. In this edition of the podcast, we'll hear poems by David Wagoner. David Wagoner was born in 1926 in Ohio and grew up in Indiana. Wagoner was initially influenced by his family ties, as well as the ethnic neighborhoods and industrial character of his early environment. Wagoner moved to Washington State in 1954, when Theodore Rutke encouraged him to apply for a teaching job there. The move had a dramatic impact on Wagoner's outlook and his poetry. Wagoner recalls feeling a sense of uneasiness that turned into awe while driving down from the Cascade Mountains toward Seattle. His deep affinity for the landscape of the Pacific Northwest, where he's lived and taught for more than 50 years, is at the center of his poetry. His poems often catalog that landscape, its stones, waterfalls, loons, and moss. At times, the poems register his anger at the destruction caused by human activities, such as the clear-cutting of forests or the senseless shooting of hawks. While mourning violations of the natural world, Wagoner continues to write of his fellow men and women with empathy and humor. The author of more than a dozen collections of poetry, Wagoner was a longtime editor of the journal Poetry Northwest from 1966 until 2002. He is also a successful novelist, writing both mainstream and regional fiction of the West. In 1982, his novel The Escape Artist was made into a film produced by Francis Ford Coppola. Wagoner has received numerous awards, including the Ruth Lilly Poetry Prize and fellowships from the Guggenheim Foundation and the National Endowment for the Arts. The following five poems were recorded in Seattle in 2008. Between Neighbors The complainant is a big man in his own goddamn front yard in a wheelchair. His voice is high and highly offended, but only half as loud, as the dogs barking on his porch. His goddamn neighbors, a young male couple standing their own ground, deadpanned, on the other side of the chain-link fence, went and aimed their hose at his expensive bird and hosed it. It was innocently catching a little healthy goddamn son in its cage. The cop bends close to listen. Then he walks off to consult the complainees, who say the barking, the barking goes on and on till they can't, just can't stand it. If they pass on the sidewalk, the dogs bark. If they decide to swing on their porch swing, the dogs bark. So, yes, they hosed his parrot and would do it again. The big man says between barks he needs listen. He needs the dogs as a signal to tell him strangers are nearby. The cop explains loudly the definition of nuisance, issues of warning, turns his palms like a double stop sign up, and against opposing sides, then demonstrates keeping the peace by bending forward and saying, Polly want a cracker? and offering, through the cage bars, one healing finger. And the wet-backed, green-backed, red-white-and-blue paramilitary macaw gives a counter-demonstration to all of them of what can happen if you give somebody, anybody, the finger. Their Bodies to the students of anatomy at Indiana University. 
That gaunt old man came first, his hair as white as your scoured tables. Maybe you'll recollect him by the scars of steel mill burns on the backs of his hands, on the nape of his neck, on his arms and sinewy legs, and her by the enduring innocence of her face, as open to all of you in death as it would have been in life. She would memorize your names and ages and pastimes and hometowns if she could, but she can't now, so remember her. They believed in doctors, listened to their advice, and followed it faithfully. You should treat them one last time as they would have treated you. They had been kind to others all their lives and believed in being useful. Remember their son, somewhere, is trying hard to believe you'll learn as much as possible from them as he did, and will do your best to learn politely and truly. They gave away the gift of those useful bodies against his wish. They had their own ways of doing everything, always. If you're not certain which ones are theirs, be gentle to everybody. Trying to write a poem while the couple in the apartment overhead make love. She's like a singer straying slowly off-key while trying too hard to remember the words to a song without words, and her accompanist is metronomically dead-set to sustain her pitch and tempo, and meanwhile, under their feathers and springs, under their carpet, under my own ceiling, I try to go on making something or other out of nothing but those missing words, whose rhythm is only predictable for unpredictable moments, and then erratic, unforeseeable even at its source, where it ought to be abundantly, even painfully clear. A song is a series of vowels interrupted and shaped by consonants and silence, and gifted singers say if you can pronounce words and remember how to breathe, you can sing. Although I know some words by heart and think I know how to breathe, even down here at work alone, and may be able sometimes to write some of them down, right now it seems improbable they'll have anything much like the permissive diction the mounting cadences now or then or now again the suspended poise the drift backward the surprise of the suddenly almost soundless catch of the caught breath the quick loss of support which wasn't lost at all as it turns out but found again and even again somewhere in mid-air far far above me the principles of concealment if you're caught in the open, in an exposed position, alone, disarmed, and certain you may be attacked at any moment, you should settle quickly all your differences with whatever lies around you, forcing yourself to agree with rocks and bushes, trees and wild grass, horses, cows, or sheep, even debris, to find out what you have in common. You no longer want to seem what you are but something harmless and familiar. In a landscape given to greenness and cold pastels of stubble and field stone, protective coloration may be too much to hope for, beyond your powers, like the beatitudes of browsing and those conspicuously alarming colors that declare you're poisonous or taste terrible, 
all may be doomed to fail with an enemy equipped to kill from a distance. Your shape betrays you, and you should try to break it with disruptive patterns. If an enemy sees you, not as a whole, but as a head distinct from a torso, as legs or arms by themselves, he may ignore you and let you have your moment in the sun, as an abstraction gone to pieces, as a surface mottled and dappled ambiguously by intercepted light, like a man cancelled. But all these efforts will come to nothing if you move. One gesture may catch all eyes. If you stand still then, or stay seated if you're sitting down, or go on lying down if you're lying, an easy solution may occur to you, cheek to cheek with the hard facts of inorganic life. That you have no enemy, that no one is hunting you, that all your precautions were a waste of attention, better given to more rewarding evasions and pursuits. If so, and you take your place again as a distinct departure from your foreground, and background. You should know it's possible for you to feel, after all, at the first step, at the first crack out of the box, that lethal impact, that private personal blow marking your loss of the light of day, the companionship of the night, and the creature comforts of home as you become a member of that other civilization spreading itself around you, ready and able and still called the natural world. The good night and good morning of Federico García Lorca. He knew he was asleep and was dreaming of a beautiful poem. It seemed to be singing itself in the night, and he woke in a bed, in a room, in an old hotel, and lay there, hearing the song go on, though he could see the shape of his empty shirt on the straight chair and his empty shoes on the patch of carpet made light, half by the moon and half by the gray beginning of dawn. He could see the silhouette of his own hand against the window shade, like a flower, open and waiting. He smiled at the foolishness of loving his own poem in his own dream, of accepting praise from his own shadow. But his mind's eye kept seeing that poem, and his real ear kept hearing that same song. It came from the street under his window, and before he knew why, he was out of bed and shivering his way clumsily into some of his clothes and one of his shoes, and stumbling into the hall and down the unlighted stairs and through the lobby, where the clerk was dreaming something else, through the stubbornly locked door and along the sidewalk to the curb, where the singer was sweeping trash and leaves along the gutter with his slow broom, who now stopped, his mouth open to gape at an apparition holding a scrap of paper up to his face and begging him to read aloud. The sweeper whispered he couldn't read, and Lorca took him into his arms and kissed him, and kissed the morning air, now stirring what was left of the leaves overhead, and went limping back through a door that stood wide open in a grand lobby, and up the stairs into bed to lie there, stark awake, as sleeplessly as a poet who'd been told he was immortal. That was David Wagoner, recorded in Seattle in 2008 and used by permission of the author and the University of Illinois Press. 
You have been listening to the Essential American Poets podcast, produced by the Poetry Foundation in collaboration with PoetryArchive.org. To learn more about David Wagoner and other Essential American Poets, and to hear more poetry, go to PoetryFoundation.org.